0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from good old LBJ, Melissa Harris-Perry, Grit TV, Economic Update, Disorderly Conduct, Mumia Abu-Jamal, This Week in Blackness, and The Young Turks.
1: On an April afternoon... In the year 1966, I asked a distinguished group of citizens that were interested in human rights to meet me in the cabinet room in the White House. In their presence that afternoon, I signed a message to the Congress. That message called for the enactment, and I quote, of the first effective federal law against discrimination in the sale and the rental of housing in the United States of America. Few in the nation, and the record will show that very few in that room that afternoon, believed that fair housing would in our time become the unchallenged law of this land. And now, at long last, this afternoon, its day has come. Now, with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life.
2: Wednesday morning my husband James caught a flight to Washington DC. Y'all know James. You know he sometimes joins the MHP show table to share his professional expertise earned through a decade of advocacy on behalf of Fair Housing. And protecting hard-earned victories in Fair Housing is what took him and dozens of other activists and advocates to Washington DC on Wednesday morning to DC and to the steps of the Supreme Court. Because on Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs v. the Inclusive Communities Project. I know, it's not exactly a snappy title, but this case is really, really important. So stick with me. When the court rules on this case, the one that got those activists out in the cold with their hand-lettered signs, when the court makes this decision, it could be among the most historic and consequential choices ever made about an issue at the heart of American lives and dreams. The place we call home. Because at the core of this case is the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Now see, the Fair Housing Act was the final piece of civil rights legislation resulting from that fraught but productive partnership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and President Lyndon Johnson. Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act just seven days after the assassination of Dr. King amid riots that gripped the segregated communities of American cities and altered our urban landscape for decades. Johnson insisted even as cities burned in the aftermath of shock and mourning for the loss of King that this piece of legislation was the necessary capstone of civil rights. Quote, now with this bill the voice of justice speaks again it proclaims that fair housing for all All human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. Johnson and King had been working on the issue of housing for years. The president's Kerner Commission had found that housing segregation was a root cause of previous riots in 1967 and urged, quote, opening up opportunities to those who are restricted by racial segregation discrimination and eliminating all barriers to their choice of jobs, education, and housing. At the time, property owners and realtors and banks and local governments and even the federal government explicitly discriminated against African-Americans, restricting which neighborhoods they could live in and preventing them from buying homes, even if they had the means and money to do so. The Federal Housing Act ended all of that, and yet more than 45 years later, residential segregation remains a serious obstacle to equality. Now, discrimination is rarely so explicit as it was before the Federal Housing Act. Most people, although certainly not all, know better than to publicly refuse to rent or sell to someone because of their race. Still, enforcement of the Fair Housing Act has proved nimble enough to adjust to the more subtle forms of discrimination. Rather than needing to prove intent, most cases provide evidence of disparate impact. See, a housing policy or practice can be found to be discriminatory if it has a disparate impact that is a different and negative effect on one racial group, or if the policy or practice perpetuates or deepens segregation. Disparate impact looks at the effects without having to prove intent. That's where the Supreme Court case comes in. In the case the court heard on Wednesday, a group in Dallas has claimed that the state of Texas was being discriminatory when it gave incentives to build affordable housing almost exclusively to developments in poor minority neighborhoods. The group argues that the practice violates the Fair Housing Act because it keeps those who need affordable housing, disproportionately people of color, in minority neighborhoods and thus perpetuates residential segregation but the state of texas even though it's already agreed to change its practices disagrees texas claims that the fair housing act only prohibits discrimination quote because of race and therefore that it only bars intentional discrimination and therefore that the disparate impact standard is invalid and even though every Federal Circuit Court that has heard a challenge to the disparate impact standard has upheld it. The Supreme Court has been trying to get a clear shot at it for years, and now it has one. That's pretty scary.
3: they they using on me. will never stop me. Oh no. Say what you
4: can do. In the US, like in so many other countries, home ownership is part of the success story dream. A home of your own in a neighborhood that feels safe. Why after so many years is that still an unrealized dream? for so many people. And why are our cities and towns still so segregated? More than five years since the housing market collapsed, the media have mostly stopped talking about housing policy, but we haven't. Have the problems been fixed? Far from it. It turns out we're not even quite clear what the problems actually are. Are they personal, political, private, or a matter of policy? More important, what does history show we can do to improve things. Nicole Hannah Jones is an investigative reporter who covers civil rights for ProPublica. Her new ebook, Living Apart, How the Government Betrayed a Landmark Civil Rights Law, explores the decades-long failure of the federal government to enforce the Landmark 68 Fair Housing Act. Jennifer Taubs, a law professor at Vermont Law School, who's written extensively about the 2008 financial crisis. Her new book is Other People's Houses, how decades of bailouts, captive regulators, and toxic bankers made home mortgages a thrilling business. Welcome both. Let's start with you, Nicole. Segregation. It was 50 years ago that you had Governor Wallace in Alabama saying segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever didn't we end that?
5: Well in some ways we did. Um, What Governor Wallace was talking about was complete absolute segregation and he was speaking of course about schools specifically but um, in housing we have now more integration but for many many communities particularly the black community uh, segregation levels have not really changed since 1960. How do you measure it today? Well you measure it by looking at um, how many if you take the population of a particular city and then you can look at how many people of different races live in particular neighborhoods. And so a city like New York City is actually the second most segregated city in the nation.
4: But the white community will say, well, but we don't have white
5: communities like we used to. That's right. And that's why I say segregation now means that we still have it. So you have almost entirely black communities, but there are very few communities that are entirely white. So white um, communities tend to have some level of, of diversity, but there are many black communities where nearly everyone in the community is black.
4: Now, no group lost more wealth in housing wealth than women of color in the financial crisis. Um, Jennifer, what does the mortgage crisis have to do with this picture beyond that?
6: There are many connections because what the mortgage crisis is about, what led to it, as well as the failure to really respond and help people, is tied to predatory lending. How so? Well, if you look at communities of color, um, black communities and Latino communities suffered more in the housing crisis because they were disproportionately targeted for predatory loans. And so even when studies have controlled for things like wealth, the, the, uh, they still bear out that fact.
4: Well, but unpack the term for us a little <clears throat> bit. I mean, in some quarters these were seen as community development programs, helping people get houses. You're calling them predatory. What do you mean?
6: You're touching on what one of the myths are about the crisis. There are still these prevailing stories that the multi-trillion dollar bank bailouts were necessary because poor people who could not afford homes tricked bankers into loaning them money. Irresponsible borrowers. Uh, Even as I say it, it sounds ridiculous, and it is. The numbers don't bear that out, and it's not true. And one of the um, pieces of legislation that's unfairly targeted for blame is the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. And as you probably remember, this is a law that was designed to deal with redlining, the practice of banks refusing to lend um, by literally drawing on maps red lines around communities that happen to be communities of color. And so it's actually absolutely not true, and a um, study uh, report by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission showed and concluded that this had almost nothing to do with the financial crisis and that the worst loans were actually made by lenders that were not even subject to the Community Reinvestment Act.
4: Now you mentioned redlining as if everybody knows what that means. I'm going to come to you on this, Nicole. For one thing it's still striking to me how we misunderstand how housing segregation got set up this way. Uh, Redlining was at the heart of it, and yet it dates back to a period people think of as good for social policy, the FDR era.
5: Right, so prior to the Great Depression, actually we were a pretty integrated society. Most black Americans lived in majority white communities, which makes sense. Black Americans were only and have been for a couple centuries now, only 12 to 13 percent of the population. So it makes sense that they would live in majority white communities. Uh, but following the Great Depression, you have this desire to really bolster the middle class. Um, and so we have these programs where um, the federal government, led by FDR, decides that he, the government's going to get into the business of insuring mortgages. Prior to that, you had to have between 50 and 80 percent down to buy a house, which of course would exclude almost everyone watching this program. Um, but after that, once the government started to insure loans, you only needed 20 percent down. But uh, the government also decided that there were certain Americans who didn't really deserve that helping hand, and those were Black Americans. And so, was it
4: as explicit as that? It
5: was that. It was that explicit. Black Americans, and to a lesser extent, um, Jews in some places, and some other ethnic groups. And so, it was the federal government that actually introduced. Um, redlining and what they did was they rated certain communities certain communities would be deemed the least risky and communities that would also be deemed the most risky and the most risky communities were literally outlined on a map in red and these were areas that the government would not insure loans and of course if the government wouldn't insure loans then the private business industries Took the lead from the government and also refused to lend in those areas. And not only would the government not insure loans in black communities, but also in integrated communities. So if you were a white person living in an integrated community, you would suddenly find that you couldn't get loans, you couldn't get loans to repair your homes, you couldn't get loans to purchase your homes,
4: and people couldn't get loans to buy those homes. So whites weren't just fleeing, you hear a lot about white flight, they were kind of edged out by policy, or at least responding to policy triggers. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, there was definitely some of
5: both. There were definitely white people who did not want to live around black people. But in neighborhoods that were already integrated, there suddenly became a financial disincentive to have an integrated neighborhood. And so this, this kind of truism that black people brought property values down, which we still believe. What actually was the case was it wasn't because black people weren't caring for their property. It was literally the federal government would not loan or insure a loan in a neighborhood. So property values did go down because of that. But it wasn't because of the color of the people moving in, but federal policy that was discriminatory.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using, or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
7: So people over the last, I think particularly since the Second World War, there's a pattern... Of people unhappy with whatever the conditions were in the cities having an option of leaving the city and going to a suburb a suburb that could exclude everybody who wasn't rich by zoning rules that said you you have to have an acre or two <laughs> per house or no no apartments or no apartments right. to be built at all in other words you allowed people in different economic groups to move into an area which became exclusive for them and that could block others from coming and segregation has worked very well do you mean segregation by race
8: do you mean segregation by economics I think we live in a country in which uh, talking about segregation about race is acceptable but talking about segregation by economics is not acceptable I think the bottom line is basically it's economics And tell us a
7: little bit, you know, embellish that. Tell me. Well,
8: there are a couple things that you need to know. I mean, uh, which has helped this problem. One of them is a in 1938, the federal government set up a mortgage uh, in Washington, and they would insure mortgages for the local banks. And uh, as a result of this, they standardized the type of mortgage that you could get, a 30-year self-amortized mortgage right. uh, at a fixed I- interest rate. <clears throat> and, of course, a lot of the uh, areas took advantage of this mortgage. The only thing was the mortgage was not, you couldn't get, get a mortgage if you were black or Jewish and um, probably for a while even Irish uh, because they felt that that would decrease the value of the mortgage. So large segments of the country were redlined uh, by the uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation, and these red lines were followed by most of the banks in this country. So in other words, the government guaranteed the mortgage so that the
7: banks no longer had a risk, Right. and the banks would be willing to lend, but, but in order worried. to make it all work, they had rules, these banks right. did. They didn't lend to poor people, basically and they didn't lend to minorities minorities of various kinds that they didn't approve of or they didn't think what and so you ended up again through this program creating these economically segregated suburb versus city upper income suburb versus less income suburb this pattern that we now see and I notice you picked St. Louis I know from talking to you that one of the reasons is something that's in the news this week Ferguson Mm -hmm. because in a sense the explosion of Ferguson the shooting of a a black person by a white police officer uh, and now this latest week of more troubles and more tension suggests that your thesis that this isn't just a racial problem although it clearly has that, that dimension but is also an economic problem tell us a little bit more about how Ferguson reflects and shows what you've been telling
8: well us. I think you have to understand that um, what happened after the Second World War is we had this interstate highway program and uh, Ferguson actually was one of the first what we call trolley car suburbs it was the location of a train station the first stop outside of St. Louis and so when it was set up the uh, guy who owned the land Mr. Ferguson gave 10 acres to the rail company and they put the rail line through his property and a station some white people moved out there but after the second world war the interstate highway program developed and uh, this in turn opened up even more space which we had plenty of right next uh, suburb to Ferguson actually was a very famous golf course and uh, this golf course decided to move further out on the interstates and as a result the people who lived in Ferguson moved out to play golf and not only that the uh, county the the, uh, municipality wanted to um, build out Logan Airport and as a result the runway just happened to go right into a black community so the black community was displaced for the uh, new Logan Airport expansion this is for for St. Louis yeah and they they moved into guess where Ferguson. Ferguson because now the whites are moving out of Ferguson so the blacks are moving of, further out right, with the interstate f- right and the displaced African-American community it's moving in Ferguson right and of course another thing was a lot of these areas outside of the city had restrictive covenants the restrictive co- covenants the covenant says that you can't do X like you can't sell the black guy you can't sell the Jew uh, you can't have an outhouse. You can't live in a house trailer. Right. So until these were thrown out in a court case in Missouri, it, most of these areas were restricted, and blacks had to move into areas like uh, eventually Ferguson.
7: So you had to have the money to move. You had to have the money to qualify for a mortgage. And then you had to be whatever they were allowed by their covenants to sell to. Right. So you created black dominated communities where a disproportionate number of blacks could live, and other communities where they were blocked from living. And the same is true for poor people or Jews or Irish or whoever was being excluded by this patchwork arrangement that was not subject to any overarching logic or regional planning or sense of how... Well, you know, let me pose you then the question that I'm sure is in the minds of many of those listening, which is... If you believe in a democratic system of everybody equal, then you would have to have a housing structure consistent with that. What you're describing is a country that says it's committed to democracy, but is in fact permitting and even encouraging Encouraging, the structure of housing in cities that is contrary to democratic everything, and then wonders why the democracy is formal and not real
8: matter of fact after the second world war we had this guy uh, by the name of levitt you may have heard of him yes and he started building housing outside Levittowns. of the same, the Levittown's levitt right he was selling for six thousand nine hundred dollars an 800 square foot house and you could move in this was right after world war ii right you could move in for 60 dollars a month and uh, as a result if you're white <laughs> And there reason. was a rule. Yeah. He, if you well, weren't white, had, you couldn't. Right. C- you, well, you you couldn't get a mortgage. You, could, you couldn't get. So mortgage effectively, sure. right. you, it, you're excluded. Right,
7: right. So you exclude. You had to have that amount of money to spend. Yeah. And be, six, you had to be six, white. Sixty dollars. Six, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like very little now, but sixty dollars in 1947 was significant money.
8: Yeah, but, uh, you know, you had the GI, uh, Bill. were coming back, and they could go to college, and so $60 was a reasonable price a month for a house, yeah. And of course, what happened between nineteen hundred 1900 and nineteen sixty? and 1960, the, uh, suburbs boomed. So for the 50 years from 1950 to 19, to say 2000, the suburbs grew at yeah. an alarming rate. And then when the suburbs, when they grew, of course, they needed a place to shop. So the shopping malls grew along with them. And strip shopping also moved in at the same time. I remember one of the side results that if we had more
7: time, we would talk about it. One of the consequences of all of this was that the cities lost population. Right, cities (coughs) deteriorated and instead of that being understood as a problem that required the nation to come to terms with it, what you had was the private solution of individuals. If the city is becoming a problem, I personally with my family, I'm leaving the city, I'm going to a better, safer, cheaper uh, suburb. And so you had the, the city's deterioration continue. The government efforts were never enough to counter the private enterprise decisions of masses of people to leave and then the stores followed them and then you had this absurdity I remember for years I lived in New Haven Connecticut which was constantly redeveloping and revitalizing its downtown because it couldn't face the reality that the people in the suburbs were never going to come back into town to shop because the shopping centers had moved out to where they were and people were unwilling or afraid to come into the city so the deterioration the gap between city and suburb which is replicated in our national politics, has gotten worse and worse, and places like St. Louis, Detroit, Cleveland, Camden are the kind of exemplary cases of the extremity of this inequality.
8: Yeah, if you look at Ferguson, for example, in uh, 1900, uh, they only had 1,000 people living in the town, but by 1960, the town had grown to about 22,000. And it's stayed uh, pretty much around that figure since then. But the uh, racial balance has, moved, has changed. In uh, 2000, 44% were white and 52% were Afri- African-American. In uh, 2010, only 29% were white and 67 were African-American. <coughs> so what happened is you have a, a community like this, and of course you have to have a, a mayor, you have to have a city council, and you have to have a school system, and you have to have a, a superintendent of schools, and you have to have a court system, and you have to have police. So this costs a lot of money. And since the, in the case of Ferguson, since the voting for these offices took place on, in off, vote, off years, now there's not when they're, not when the presidential election took place, but in the off years, as a consequence, the whites were pretty much able to hold on to power here and uh, the blacks were pretty much excluded. Uh, yes, I think
7: in the, in the news reporting about Ferguson, one of the most stunning realities was that you basically had a white government and a yep. white police force right. policing a major- an overwhelmingly majority African-American community and acting as if this was reasonable, normal, and then the surprise and shock when it blows up on you.
8: Well, it blew up because Ferguson, uh, actually, I think about 40% of Ferguson today, the housing is underwater. And uh, as a result, the uh, town needed income. So they told the cops, go out there and arrest everybody you can. And uh, I think in Ferguson alone, right in the last few years, they've been issuing like 1,500 tickets for every 1,000 people that live in the town.
7: Yeah, it's incredible. A town that not only funds itself by parking tickets and driving tickets and and pedestrians but does so in this grossly unfair way to sustain an army of public officials which a regional structure would save vast amounts of money by consolidating and then has a white apparatus imposing this on a black population I mean you couldn't design a more dysfunctional explosive system if you sat down and worked at it it's well, remarkable. I think, that,
8: I think what's happening in Ferguson is very interesting because nobody's really asking the right question the right question is do we need Ferguson? Right? Do we need towns yeah,
7: set right. up like this right. with this kind of lopsided government expense imposed on a minority? I mean yeah it is, it is beyond words the answer is obviously yes and in fact it only leads to the question how in the world is this allowed to become this way in in the in the minute we have left for this you said something to me before we went on the air that i want you to say again is ferguson an extreme example of something that we don't have to worry about because it doesn't occur a lot or is ferguson average or how do you how do we assess the craziness of ferguson within the larger
8: problems of our housing industry. Well take a look at the New York Times Sunday the eighth eighth of March. Eighth of March. You find that Ferguson was probably the least of the problems in both the St. Louis metropolitan area and Kansas City metropolitan area. And uh, there was a conference apparently of the police and the police were surprised that Ferguson blew up because there are other areas in that area that are worse, worse example. Much, much, much worse. Alright, would you, last, last
7: point that we'll have time for. Do you think the problems of housing and Ferguson and suburbanization, given what you just said, are we looking at an abnormal situation or are we looking at, at explosions that every logic would lead us to expect will multiply and worsen
8: in these other examples that are worse than Ferguson? I think the it's likely that Ferguson is showing what the future might hold for us, but I also think that there's a possibility that if we set up like limited equity co-ops in our cities uh, that were green, we could start addressing a lot of these problems.
7: Right, that the initiative, and I know you're working on that and maps when you come and come back to us in a future time, can talk about setting up both a community structure, a regional structure, and a housing that, because they're also interconnected, as you've shown us, would allow us to have more a democratic system but a more viable way for our people to interact with one another rather than in this chaotic and as we now see explosive <laughs> allowing all of this to happen in a way that disrupts the peace, the tranquility, and the and the proper relationship
8: among people. I think there's even a bigger problem, and that's climate change. Climate change has made uh, practically all these areas completely unsustainable. And unless we change where we live and how we live and who we live with, we, we're going to have problems.
1: It's been a long time coming
3: since the days of the niggas. Whips change legends, human cotton pickers. Take a look around, ain't a whole lot changed. Plantations projects close to being the same. They came up with a way to keep the black man down. A new day and age, and it still working now. Can spend your life as a welfare recipient to get more help when you don't wanna do shit. Max responsibility for minimum wage. Get rid of your heritage and you can get paid. A simple technique often used on the brothers. Treat house niggas way better than the others. Show us shit stink. Pretty soon you'll see that Uncle Tom's position is where most wanna be. Slave mentality is prevalent in black society. We see it and we don't now that's a solid.
9: Let's move on to the second item that we're going to talk about in ADH Discon, which is a piece that uh, Michael Denzel Smith and I produced uh, that will be in the issue of The Nation that hits newsstands any day now, um, about uh, the w- – in, in which we propose that um, white supremacy is – uh, that in order to combat white supremacy, um, you need, in addition to all of the good, uh, police reforms that are being proposed by Ferguson Action and Justice League and all of the Black Lives Matter groups, that you also need to have, uh, an economic program. Um, and, uh, so I just wanted to give you the little rundown on that just as a plug for it so that you can go out and look for it and read it and share it. I'm very proud of it. Um, Basically, we lay out first. We lay out the reason why we think that, um, and I, I want to just highlight a, a passage that Michael brought to the piece, which I, I think is really wonderful. Um, he notes that, like at the inception of the enslavement, the, the like institutionalized enslavement of of African slaves, like th- that this was done for practical rather than bigoted reasons. You know, like you might think like it was just white folks hated people with black skin and so they enslaved them or whatever, um, but actually it was. You know, they, they they couldn't enslave Western Europeans because they. You know had the language skills and the social customs necessary to enter into contracts which African enslaved Africans didn 't have that you know custom barriers language barriers that couldn 't enter into contracts they were much more readily enslavable and also white folks couldn 't uh, enslave the indigenous population because they were familiar with the terrain and could just run away unlike uh, enslaved and imported Africans so <clears throat> there were there was a practical reason uh, to to uh, enslave Africans for for the early um, American uh forefathers um, and and so uh, it, so the the racist rationale, that like ideology of race and racism and white supremacy, then was sort of back to justify this material inequality. And we go go a lot into Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields, which is a book I've talked about a number of times on this program, uh, which basically lays out how um, we created this biological fiction called race in order to explain black people's inferiority, in, like inferior social situation in the United States, uh, people who opposed and people who uh, supported slavery around the revolutionary era, uh, um, uh, attributed this enslavement of black people to their racial incapacity, um, conceived of race as like a scientific difference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So because the, the economic exploitation is the reason for which, uh, to create an ideology of race and racism, uh, we argue, Michael and I, that you have to, um, uh, institute a program that, um, uh, you have to institute an economic program in order to like, eliminate um, white supremacy's reason for being and reason for continual um, uh, reinforcement. And the program that we propose is one that won't surprise listeners of Discon because it's the same kind of stuff that uh, we always talk about here. It's a full employment program based on a job guarantee and a basic income uh, to bring, but I, I should uh, shout out a fact that I learned when researching this piece um, the i 'm going to have you guess uh, Alexis, if you can, the um, unemployment rate for black teenage high school dropouts uh, from wealth for wealth poor families. What do you think the unemployment rate for that sort of person is in the u s
6: uh, Does that count or not count
10: people who are incarcerated
9: uh, I think it does not count those people
10: uh, thirty.
9: 95%. What? Oh Ninety-five percent of those people are unemployed. Oh so, uh, so that's a, a totally, totally bonkers fact, and it and it just goes to show that like you, we need better than the like usual stimulus things. That that like even at the height of the Clinton boom, we had like almost four percent unemployment, and like who are the millions of people who remain unemployed even when we're at peak boom? That's who it is. Like the people at the very back of the employment line, the least employed, least employable people. So that's why we need a full. Um, true full employment strategy with carried out by a a pairing of a job guarantee and a basic income. We also advocate for a land value tax, um, to address all of the ways in which like land market speculation has instituted, um, white supremacy, you know, white flight, racially exclusive suburban residential development charters, redlining, uh, Gentrification, um, the the um, predatory uh, uh, lending that fueled the housing bubble, and wound up stealing fifty three percent of all black wealth, like the majority of black wealth just canceled, evaporated. Um, so that those are the first two things, and the last one is baby bonds, which I don't know if we've talked about in this program. I, I think we did when we had on Sandy Darity. Um, he and Derek, he Sandy Darity is a, at um, Duke University, and Derek Hamilton, his sort of partner in crime, is at the New School University, and they they proposed a baby bond program because uh, reparations, they say, is is not politically feasible. Um, it's just not like the the politics around it are prohibitive. Um, and Michael and I say that we support a, a, um, a pro you know a, a program of reparations payments, but that in if if that is politically impossible, we should do these baby bonds. And really quickly, what a baby bond is is a trust fund granted to a newborn infant who can't be, even if you want to blame adults for being in poverty and say that that's their failing, you can't blame an infant for being born into poverty. So it targets them, gives them a trust fund at birth that matures, and they can get the money when they're 18. Every baby born into a wealth poor family, that is to say below median or wealth position, would get a trust fund. The farther below median the your family 's wealth position is the bigger the trust fund so the lowest quartile of newborn infants in wealth position would get like fifty to sixty thousand dollar trust fund that they could get when they were eighteen, and uh, Darity and Hamilton estimate that this could close the racial wealth gap in two to three generations so that 's like you know forty years or something like that it 's not as good as it would be with a straight reparations program, but if it would close the racial wealth gap, it would do an awful lot of good.
11: Let's make this home and go.
0: Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think.
12: Ferguson, USA. With breathless news reports, the U.S. Department of Justice's Pattern and Practice Study paints a damning picture of a long, cruel, and bitter train of maltreatment, mass profiling, police targeting, and brutality against black people in the Missouri town of Ferguson. What may be even worse, however, is how the town's police, judges, and political leaders have conspired to loot the community by fining them into more poverty, fines which today account for some 25% of the county's budget. Correctly, cops have been criticized for their juvenile emails and texts of racism and contempt against the local black community and even black leaders in Washington, D.C. There is largely silence, however, over the role of judges who use their robes to squeeze money from the community with unfair fines and fees, even using their jails as an illegal kind of debtor's prison. In 1869, during the reign of England's Queen Victoria, a statute known as the Debtors Act was passed, which forever abolished imprisonment as punishment for debt. In today's Missouri, it's still used to punish the poor. But truth be told, it ain't just Missouri. Famed Rolling Stone writer Matt Taibbi, in his 2014 book, The Divide, tells a similar tale, but from points all across America, Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, Gainesville, Georgia, L.A., San Diego, and beyond. Poor people are being squeezed and squeezed by cops, by judges, by local governments to part with their last dime to support a system that's corrupt to the core. Taibbi's full title might give us better insight. The Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap. It's the system, one of exploitation, of predation, ultimately of capitalism from imprisonation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal.
7: It's so
1: simple, figure it out. Some beat with nice stakes. some beat your brow When the crooked cops come knock at your house you better borrow out I'll follow home and I will stay In Boston, the town with this song.
13: a lawsuit that's being, been filed in the Eastern District of Missouri against Ferguson uh, describing a situation where poor people are being jailed because they are unable to pay for traffic tickets or other minor offenses. They're being held in jail indefinitely without being given access to, lawyer, to a lawyer. They've been threatened and abused by, the, by municipality officials until frightened family members are able to, to, to scrounge up enough cash to buy their freedom. So essentially, they're, they're consigning mostly black people, mostly black residents of Ferguson, to debtors' prisons.
14: Okay. We haven't
13: had debtors' prisons in a minute in this country.
14: Well, you know, we have black people, and uh, yes. they're a little getting a little uppity. So it's important that we, you know, we bring them back to their roots, is you know, bringing putting you back in, like you know, like apparently shooting black people is a little is, is is falling out of favor with society. Like society no longer unanimously agrees with the criminality of black people, so we can't keep shooting them. But we need to get them off the streets somehow. Yeah. So last I heard, you had bad credit. You were coming with me.
13: So the lawsuit is, uh, alleges that these folks were forced to endure grotesque treatment in overcrowded cells for weeks at a time. They were denied access to toothpaste and soap. They were packed on top of each other's in cells smeared with mucus, blood, and feces. <laughs> they all had to share a single toilet that never got cleaned. On, and they were subject to verbal abuse and humiliation by jail guards mocking them for not being able to pay their fines.
14: I'd to be <laughs> a, oh, I would hate the taxpayer paying for this nonsense. Just Jesus Christ.
13: Like, I mean, there are people who are s- kept in the same clothes for days and weeks without access to laundry or clean underwear. People are developing un- untreated illnesses and infections that are spreading to other inmates. Ugh. They're going weeks without being able to use a shower. They're, they're being huddled in cl- cold temperatures with only a blanket. No, they're not being given warm blankets. They're not giving adequate hygiene for, for menstruation. They're not being given tampons and maxi pads. I mean, this is disgusting. Yeah. All because someone can't afford to pay a traffic ticket.
1: Oh God.
14: And the thing about it is, I, I understand that you know, I, I get maybe they're filling a quota. I don't want to think that the police in the situation are just being overwhelmingly petty. I no, feels I feel like they're being overwhelmingly petty. They're clearly being petty, but I feel like at some point, just your own need to like, I would be terrified if I was a police officer and I missed a larger scale crime because I was too busy bringing somebody in because of an unpaid parking ticket. Yeah. Like imagine if I missed an actual fire or I missed an actual, uh, robbery and someone was genuinely, genuinely hurt because I was sitting there trying to bring somebody in because of, because of an unpaid parking ticket because I'm salty for whatever reason. Ugh. That's been my greatest fear if I was a police officer, but apparently a lot of officers don't share that fear, so it's fine. They, They take the opportunity to, you know, do what they need to do to prove their point about the importance of cops or something. Or the the improved the improved uh, what is it the the higher class of citizen that police are?
13: I just, why are people so terrible?
14: Um, well, uh, the obsession with power—we uh, like it and teach everyone to go get it. And if you don't have it, you're useless. That's most most cultures in the world teach people that. So, America's a big thing. So, you gotta have some America. You gotta have something or you got nothing. And uh we don't teach anybody any alternative, so people try to get it wherever they can.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, keep housing fair. Since the Supreme Court did the unthinkable two years ago and gutted the Voting Rights Act, social justice advocates can no longer assume decisions on long-standing affirmative laws and policies put to SCOTUS will go their way. Next up on the chopping block to have the enforcement provision stripped is the Fair Housing Act. The court heard arguments in January on Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project—catchy, I know—which challenges a key aspect of the Fair Housing Act known as the disparate impact. In a time where increasing attention is being drawn to the long-term impact of redlining and gentrification, and cities like Chicago are tearing down housing projects while failing to build the promised mixed-income buildings, it seems impossible that the Supreme Court would take away this vital tool for fighting discrimination. Senator Elizabeth Warren explained in a Washington Post op-ed that stripping out disparate impact would affect more than just those who are directly discriminated against. Quote, as with the voting rights decision, a decision limiting the scope of the Housing laws would ignore the will of Congress and undermine basic principles of racial equality. But there's even more at stake in the fair housing case because the wrong decision would reduce economic opportunities for working families and raise the risk of another financial crisis. Unquote. As this is an issue of racial justice and economic justice, many organizations and elected officials have spoken out over the past few months. The National Fair Housing Alliance and other social justice groups created the hashtag Keep housing Fair to spearhead an awareness campaign with events, speeches, shareable graphics, and more. You can follow the latest via their Twitter and Facebook feeds. As always, proactively letting your representatives know that fair access to housing matters to you through contacting the congress.org is a valuable action should the court make an unfortunate ruling? Also, a reminder for Chicago listeners, your current mayor has been no champion of fair housing, mainly continuing the broken promises policies of the Daily Dynasty. Rahm Emanuel is facing Jesus Chuy Garcia April 4th in a runoff election. You can find your polling place at ChicagoElections.com. Fair housing needs to be on the radar ahead of the 2016 primaries. ProPublica writer Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we heard from in today's episode, has a series of articles as well as a book, a $1.99 Kindle Download titled Living Apart How the Government Betrayed a Landmark Civil Rights Law. That's a must read for anyone who wants more of a history on unfair housing practices in the US so they can be prepared to be part of the effort to ensure it's an issue next year. The thought of such a long election season may be exhausting, I know it is for me, but with Republicans already announcing, it's never too early to raise public consciousness on vital issues that should be part of the debates, platforms, and campaigns. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If equal access to housing matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about hashtag Keep housing fair via social media so that others in your network can help spread the word.
4: Activism. Serious. Activism. Mm-hmm. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down civil war,
5: intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action?
15: The Department of Justice's report on police abuses of power in Ferguson, Missouri, continues to reveal damning details of the ways that both the police and the courts have routinely abused both their power and the people living in Ferguson. And they've identified two, apparently, principal motivators for that abuse. Uh, last week, or earlier this week, I should say, we revealed the extremely racist emails that have been routinely passed around both by the police and by the courts, and we've got more for you, and they are shocking. We also find out that money was one of the key motivators for a systematic abuse of power in pretty much every facet of Ferguson life. The report found that city police and court officials have worked in concert to maximize revenue at every stage of the enforcement process for several years. City and police leadership... Uh, pressure officers to write citations independent of any public safety need and rely on citation productivity to fund the city budget many officers have no tools for de-escalating emotionally charged scenes and they themselves routinely dismissed parking tickets for their friends colleagues and acquaintances so on the one hand, they are attempting to give as many uh, tickets and fines and fees as possible, and in some cases, as we'll show you, locking individuals in Ferguson into a cycle that they effectively cannot leave, where they are paying fees for the rest of their life, um, giving out crazy amounts of citations. We've heard that in a city of 16,000 people, in some years, they've had 9,000 or 10,000 arrest warrants. In this community of 16,000 people.
16: Yeah, I have to jump in on this point. Um, this is not unique to Ferguson. Mm-hmm. This is right. something that's happening throughout the entire country. It's a mm-hmm. form of regressive taxation. This is what happens when you don't have the rich pay their fair share of taxes, right? All of a sudden, you have to come up with the revenue, and what do you do? You start having people pay more money to park their cars on the street. You start issuing more citations. You basically go after the middle class and the working class. It's not unique to Ferguson. It's a disgusting way to make up revenue.
3: Yeah. So a couple of examples. That are, so uh, they have internal emails where they brag about, oh, we raised more revenue by yeah. giving out more fines and traffic tickets. But to the right people, not to the wrong right. people. Because mm-hmm. as John read to you, and that's part of that is so frustrating. When it comes to their friends, colleagues, and acquaintances, they're all scot-free. They don't even pay the fine, let alone the interest that they put on the fines, let alone the rest that they make off the fines, etc. No, they get none. I mean, you. The thing is. If you are the beneficiary of this, you might know if, you know, your friend in the police department got rid of a traffic ticket for you. But what you might not know is if you never got the traffic ticket in the first place, right? right. But, and you, what you certainly don't know is the experience of the people who did get those tickets. And you think, traffic ticket, what's the big deal? Well, this one woman who's not a wealthy person at all, she's an African-American woman in that neighborhood, gets multiple citations on one violation in a parking lot she gets a hundred fifty one dollar fine that's already a bit devastating, it's devastating almost for anybody right mm. that's a big number so she has trouble paying she tries to pay it
15: throughout homeless from time to
3: time as right well. yeah. but she makes an earnest effort she tries to give twenty five dollars one time another time fifty dollars as to begin to pay offered the court says no i don't want it It's a partial payment you are not. it's a technicality you are not allowed to take partial payments And but then what they do is they start finding her more and more because they're saying, well, now you're not paying it. But she's like, but I tried. So it winds up that she's already paid five hundred and fifty dollars. Okay, on the original one hundred and fifty-one dollars, but they say she still owes five hundred and forty-one dollars. the debt is endless and it gets worse. She's been arrested twice, she spent 6 days in jail, and then what job opportunities does she have after that? Yeah. You've been arrested, you spent time in jail, the government's still trying to track you down to get the extra $550 which you never owned in the first place. And this is how they systematically crush and oppress people, but you never see it because you're not in that neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And then you turn around and you go, "What racism? Man, we elected Obama. What are they still complaining about?" This is what they're complaining about.
16: But it gets worse than that, right? So when you have a police force that goes after these people and continuously antagonizes them, then you can't turn around and look at this community and say to them, why aren't you complying with cops immediately? It's because they don't trust cops, right? So you can't expect them to comply 100% when A, oftentimes they do comply, and they're brutalized anyway, and B, they're brutalized before they're even in any type of trouble. They're being targeted by the cops in these cases. Yeah. So yeah. there's a
3: specific example of that, too. And as the writer here points out, you should go read the report. I know most people obviously won't, but it is, it's a case study in how not just minorities, but poor people are mm-hmm. oppressed in this country. So a, a guy goes out and plays basketball, comes back from basketball. Cop comes by and accuses him of being a pedophile. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? Oh, you're by a playground. He's like, I know. I just played basketball there. Are you ignoring my orders? Get out of the car, okay? And You're dangerous, but he's, I'm not armed. Oh, are you? I think you might be. I'm going to search you. I'm going to do a pat-down, and I'm going to search your car. Now, when you go through that experience, I mean, if it happened to, let's say, a, a, a guy who's a, a Second Amendment advocate, and he's got a gun on the car, and the cops want to question his gun, he'd be furious, right? Yeah, right? But in this case, the guy doesn't even have a gun. He just got done playing basketball. So my point, one of my points here is, how often have you played basketball? I me, thousands of times. And I never got bothered outside a park, yeah. right? Nobody ever came to pat me down and accuse me of being a pedophile out of the blue, right? So I don't know that I'm avoiding that discrimination. I don't know that, yeah. that that's what he's got to deal with his whole life. So to Anna's point... That's why they don't trust them because they have excellent reason not to trust the police because the police have been haranguing them unduly targeting them and bringing them to prison and all these things unjustly for years and decades on. You think the Michael Brown protests sprung out of just one incident? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it sparks a flame because already people knew that they were being crushed, and that's what this Department of Justice investigation shows, and that's why it's so valuable. Just please try to learn from it so we can do better.
10: Well, I think what's disappointing is how long it took for the De- Department of Justice to actually investigate this kind of thing. Remember, it, it reminds me of, of the predatory banking practices. Remember how, you know, until they passed the new law, then if you were late for one, like $2 charge for coffee, then you got a $39 yeah. charge on top of that on your credit card, and then they would continue mm-hmm. to charge on top of it so that somebody would end up paying thousands of dollars in fines and yeah. fees because that was the nature of this predatory banking. And now this is essentially predatory policing, you know. Yeah. They're not just using it to to fund the work, uh, the 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 fund, the finances of the city and the municipality. They're also using it to sort of keep these people from actually being able to get beyond these fees. Yeah. And it's like you said, it has devastating consequences in people's lives. I mean, the guy that was pulled over at the uh, for after playing basketball, he lost his job. You won't be able to get a job after yeah. that. So it actually keeps these people in poverty.
15: And one of the charges, by the way, that made him lose his job is when uh, the cop asked him his name, he said, my name's Mike. But because his name is technically Michael on his ID, they charged him with fraud. That was, one of, that was one of the charges against These him.
10: These are made up charges. And
3: understand something. That guy was a federal contractor. That means he'd already been approved by the government. He's, you know, and he's already, he's got a job as a federal contractor. And yeah. he lost it because he told the cop his name was Mike. When it is Mike. When it is Mike. Right. And if you get targeted like that, if that happened to you day in, day out, you wouldn't be skeptical of the cops. So I need you to open your mind and understand that perhaps they have a different perspective than you. It's not that I'm telling you cops come and oppress you in your neighborhood. I'm, it's I'm telling you that's happening and you're not seeing it. You're not, yeah. But they do see it because that's their perspective. This is a slow motion Jim Crow. And so we yeah. never got rid of it. And so, you know, Anna mentioned the 9,000 warrants on cases in 2013 alone, just on the fines and fees, not 9,000 warrants overall, just on these Mm -hmm. traffic violations, these citations, etc. And they joke around in the emails like, ha ha, we raised more revenue from them. And so they cut taxes on the rich, and then they raise revenue in this way. They even talk about how they can't remove certain judges, even though they know that the judge is not fair, because they can't slow down revenue, And that judge gives out more and more citations, and he keeps that money coming, right or wrong, just or unjust. They don't care. This is the system that oppresses people in this country. And again, yes, it happens to minorities disproportionately, but it also happens to the poor across the board, all across the country, no matter what the race is. And So we got to change this. If we don't change this, then we're not living in the same country. I mean, we're back to a, a situation where we have lords... Right. Who rule us, and yeah. this is and to them, I guess they think it 's a joke they, because that 's what they do in the emails, whether it 's racist emails or in the emails where they talk about <laughs> we raise more revenue from them we knew there were more sales tax uh, tax cuts
15: coming for us, so we raised revenue from them it 's grotesque so we we continually spotlight cases from around the country that, that sort of demonstrate this pattern, and there are certainly other outlets that have done it I mean it took until trayvon martin and Michael Brown and, and those sorts of cases for them to be willing to do it, but this should be, like, the biggest issue. If you're a traditional conservative, if you're a traditional libertarian, and you talk about freedom, like, they bring up bullshit examples of how people lose their freedoms in this country, but imagine living in what is effectively a low-grade North Korea, where everything you do is criminalized. Even sitting outside of a park is a criminal act. How can you say that these people are in any meaningful way free, when everything about their life, they're just seen as Walking wallets that the government can take money from if you look at a cop the wrong way, if you say the wrong thing to a cop, you have absolutely no freedom. And they don't care at all about it. Because for the most part, the people don't look like them or the people that they uh, spend time with.
10: If your manner of walking down the street bothers the cop, then the cop can give you a ticket, according to this. By the way,
3: what happened to Michael Brown? His manner manner of walking walking down the street bothered Officer Wilson, and he eventually shot him in the head yes okay and it's also an enormous case of projection when they say oh class warfare and all the democrats want to do is take money from our class and give it to the other class they're projecting because that's what they've been doing they've been doing class warfare except they're doing it on the most powerless people in the country mugging the poor they're mugging
10: the working class
3: that's exactly right man we got to get up and we got to fight back
11: It's Ruben from San Jose calling on the racism issue and particularly, specifically racism in um, employment. When it comes to job interviews, people, whether or not they consider themselves biased, will treat uh, white people with warmth. They'll, uh, they'll have open posture and the interview will go longer. And contrary wise black people will be treated more coldly, closed, uh, closed body language, and the interview will be shorter. what's more is that the interviewer will be unaware of their racism at work, but will feel that um, that you know the white interviewee is stronger so the the notion that like Eric Holder or Barack Obama might have an advantage in terms of like an interviewer's mind or like somebody who's looking at them for a job position it just flies in the face of scientifically backed evidence so for Republicans or, you know, for, for right-wing political pundits to say that sort of thing on the air just goes to show that they're not really looking deeply or honestly into the issue. And it's pretty shameful, you know, because they're really just serving the interest of their, you know, their, like, corporate paymasters. And it's and it's diluting the the general American discourse. Like, basically, they're riling up a bunch of poor white people to blame black people for their lot in life and it's it's fucking and it's pretty shameful alright thank you
17: hey Jay it's Patrick from near Dallas commenting on uh, libertarianism Ayn Rand and all of that um, I've noticed that a lot of people are sort of misstating the uh, the libertarian corrective mechanism uh, for the marketplace um, I've just to be clear I'm not a fan of libertarianism there's numerous flaws in it which anyone can see but the 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 way it's described by say uh, Sam Cedar or some of these people is that you know people will uh, you'll build the chemical plant the pesticides will pollute then people will stop buying it and um, that uh, that this market force will will you know inhibit you from, or drive you out of business, and, and that's the corrective mechanism. The The way it's described by the true believers, and especially Ayn Rand, is that they're such fans of integrity and quality that no one would bring something unsafe to the marketplace, that these companies are going to inherently do the right thing potentially to avoid this corrective mechanism because people won't buy your products if you're doing the wrong thing. It takes only about as much sense or ever having watched a class of four-year-olds to understand that even uh, four-year-olds have a certain amount of greed and avarice that is not going to be overcome by corrective marketplace forces. Just all it takes is uh, slightly more awareness than the uh, Supreme Court has when they look out and and say, well, you know, these corruptive influences are not going to come to bear. history is full of people peddling snake oil, polluting, uh, doing anything to turn a profit. So obviously it, it, it doesn't work, but the libertarian ideal is that you're going to do the right thing to begin with. And I think this is perhaps why we should, before libertarian personal freedoms and uh, against uh, say libertarian running a business uh, as I've jokingly said get the uh, government out of the bedroom and back into the boardroom would be the way I would approach this so you know let people do most people are are willing to accept these corrective forces in their own life but uh, or accept the penalties for things in their own life interpersonal relationships etc they should have freedom there but uh, we don't trust corporations the uh, other Point that never I don't really seem to hear get brought up, but when I uh, I read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged as part of a book club way back in the 80s, and the very first word that I thought of when she described her philosophy of. Uh, you know, quality and how all this was going to work was, I can destroy that argument with one word, and that word is marketing. John Galt in it is making these incredible hamburgers and no one would buy a hamburger, otherwise if they didn't have one of his great hamburgers, he'd drive through any neighborhood in America and see the McDonald's and just realize that that quality is not what drives the majority of American decision making it's marketing um and of course everyone feels that they're immune to marketing and yet companies are spending billions on it for some reason or another anyway so those are my two thoughts uh one is that the uh, obviously the corrective mechanisms aren't even supposed to be needed because libertarians are just going to do the right thing because we're all you know inherently good people which may be but uh You you wave a big enough uh, uh, bonus in front of someone and uh, all of a sudden principles seem to go out the window or people just uh, do a lot of the wrong thing, shall we say. And any newspaper any day has numerous examples of this. Anyway, enjoy the show. Talk to you later.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick response to Patrick about libertarianism. To be clear, I certainly don't disagree with his broader premise that many libertarians would believe that given the appropriate amount of freedom from government intrusion that you know rich individuals and companies and things like that would just uh, not bring dangerous or harmful products to market because they would just want to do the right thing or they would want to avoid the you know the economic uh, you know backlash of that altogether and so they would only try to to bring good products to market that that's clearly true that some people believe that but it is not clearly true that all libertarians believe that, and, and that it's wrong to suggest some believe something else. As, as he described, you know, Sam Cedar uh, talks about libertarianism a lot, and will bring up the idea that libertarians espouse that uh, it's the economic forces which will keep harmful products at bay. That is clearly also true. Many people do. Absolutely believe that. Um, there are still others who would say, you know, oh please, you know, we're not so utopian as to believe that, you know, people are inherently good and would just do good things for the sake of being good. And good news, you don't even have to wait for those economic forces to kick in because if harmful products are, are brought to market, or, or you know, say an industrial, uh, you know, manufacturing company or a series of them are dumping so much waste into the river in your town that the river sets on fire, as has happened in the past, well then just the landowners who are nearby and are being adversely affected by the river fire could simply get together and sue that company in a court of law because that's what the government is there for and we need the government for the courts and things like that and to uh, you know carry out the judgments of the courts and so then obviously justice would be served through the courts, as is always the case when a handful of private citizens try to get together and sue giant, uh, you know, multi-million or billion-dollar companies, obviously. The, the thing is, that you can't say that, you know, one is right and the others aren't because uh, libertarians don't necessarily agree on any of these things. Uh, they're, they're sort of like snowflakes in that way, that the only thing I've ever heard libertarians agree on is that the power of government should be restricted to exactly the point of power that I personally deem is necessary. So each libertarian gets to devise their own fantasy world in which they decide what government functions are necessary and which aren't, and then they decide that's what real libertarianism is. Uh, This was sort of illustrated by our friend the Australian libertarian who called in, who happens to believe, probably probably, almost entirely because he lives in Australia under a universal healthcare system that, as a libertarian, he still believes in universal healthcare, even though it goes against an incredible number of tenets of what many other people think of, you know, what libertarianism is. So, you know, another way to illustrate this is, you know, a lot of people think of government spending like this. So imagine a pie chart. And there's a little sliver cut out of the pie chart, maybe 5%, something like that. And the 5% is labeled government spending that affects me personally. And then the other 95% is labeled government waste. That's more or less the libertarian worldview in a nutshell. Now, secondarily today, I have a, a new bonus episode out for the members of the show that I want to tell you about. It's, it's kind of a weird sh- uh, show to describe because uh, what happened was I told the story of an episode of television i watched recently and and the episode of television shows a dystopian future and the main character turned out to be me i didn't see it coming at first you know i, I it didn't hit me till very it's it's the twist at at the end when you realize oh my god it's me and i i don't i don't mean you like anyone i mean me personally specifically uh, to a much greater extent than almost anyone else on the planet so uh, so I told that story and then talked about how that was sort of a mind fuck for me and then expressed my despondency about the idea of realizing that. I was uh I was fitting in nicely as as the character living in this dystopian future and then asked the members for any uh thoughts or advice on uh on that predicament I found myself in. So if you are a member, I highly recommend you check that out and then get back to me if you have any good ideas on on how to solve my problem. If uh, you're not a member, you're starting to get a sense of, of the benefits of membership. You can sign up at the Contribute tab at the website and check that out. And, and you know, if you, whether you're a member or not, or you sign up or whatever, if you don't know how to get the bonus episode, uh, you can just send me an email. I will help you out with it. There's also a link on the con- Contribute tab with the membership details. You click on that, you log in, and uh, you can see all the details for yourself. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
11: And it's a and shame how we get
4: so trained we can't see past our sad stories and